Let's just have a few more words in prayer. Father, I thank you for your word. We approach it reverently and humbly, and we recognize that we don't judge it. It judges us. It's a mirror and a measure looking back at us, telling us where we are. And sometimes it's not where we want to be. But, Father, we ask that this word will will, uh, wash us and we'll go out refreshed from studying this very difficult book this morning. In the name of Yeshua, amen. So, does anyone know what was special about February the 28th and March the 1st? And Pastor Barry and Bob, you're not allowed to answer. February 28th, March the 1st. Wow, I would have given you half a team point for St. David's Day. It was pouring. And as I said before, back in Torah, God gave Israel seven feasts. Passover, unleavened bread, first fruits, Pentecost, trumpets, atonement, and tabernacles. And the Jewish people, like any other people, have a history. And subsequently, other feasts and fasts were added. We talked about Hanukkah before. And this morning, we're going to talk about Purim or lots, dots like our modern dice. So on the evening of Wednesday, February 28th, and the morning of Thursday, March the 1st, Jewish people around the world gathered in synagogue, and many of them had brought things to make a noise with. Soccer groggers, those things that make a noise, um, whatever. Uh, some have been wearing fancy dress. have to be honest and say, I don't like fancy dress. There's enough pretense in the world without adding to it, but that's, that's just me. Um, and it's also a time of charitable giving, as will become apparent maybe in a week's time when we reach, reach the end of the book of Esther. The rabbi will remove the Megillah, Esther, from the ark. In the front of every synagogue, there's a piece of furniture called an ark, and it contains the, the scroll of the law. And if the synagogue is wealthy enough, it'll also have other scrolls and particularly the Megillot, one of which includes the book of Esther. And he'll pronounce a blessing. And then the rabbi, the cantor, and other members of the congregation who speak clearly will read through the entire book of Esther. It's ten chapters. They're fairly short chapters. The book is read in Hebrew. Most uh, people in synagogue will know enough Hebrew to be able to follow it. Um, And the custom is... That there's, there's a, an evil guy, a bad guy in the book, Haman, and the congregation must drown his name out. So when the reader reaches that name, they, they, they swing their gruggers and shout, blot him out, may his name be cursed, so you don't get to hear the name Haman. And afterwards, when they're having their coffee, they little little three-cornered pastries called Hamantashen, or Haman's ears, and... Uh, there will be a time the rabbi will encourage people to give to Jewish or other charities. So this morning, we're going to look at the book of Esther. There are two books in the Bible named for women. Uh, One of them, Ruth, is a beautiful love story about two people who come into great blessing because they're obedient to Torah. The other one is Esther, uh, which is about... Power, lust, intrigue, and politics. It's, it's a difficult book. Can anyone tell me some unusual things about Esther? Well, first of all, God is not mentioned in it. There's a book in the Bible with absolutely no mention of God. How can that be? It, it would 
to, to the point that uh, when the rabbis were deciding what books should be in the Tanakh, they wondered about Esther. And likewise, the church fathers looking at which books should be in, in our Bible, they wondered about Esther. There are certain rules. There is, uh, you look for amplification of a doctrine and you're looking for association with a, with a, a prophetic or apostolic voice. Well, Mordecai doesn't look much like a prophet, and yet this is a, a key book. If it wasn't for the story of Esther, we wouldn't be here this morning. In fact, there wouldn't be one Jew in the world today. So it's, it's, it's a key book, and it teaches us something about God. What it teaches us about, about God is providence. Okay, We all know that as we have a relationship with God, God looks after us. But what about when God's people are not where he actually wants them? Is there something still going on? Well, we'll find out, yes, there is. But God actually still has his hand on our lives. We may go through discipline. We may not be where we want to be. But we'll actually find that God is still taking us ultimately where he wants us to go. So Daniel the prophet instructed us concerning four great empires that would dominate the land of Judea. Babylon, Media Persia, Greece, and Rome. Media Persia has superseded Babylon, and most of you will know the story of the night of Belshazzar's feast when Cyrus the Great was able to enter the city. So now, the 70 years' captivity is over, and Cyrus has pronounced his decree, and the people can return to Judea. However, less than 60,000 returned, but several million preferred to stay in the great cities of the Persian Empire. And it's not that dissimilar today. I think there are about six, six and a half million Jewish people in the state of Israel, and there are about 16 million outside the state of Israel. It was actually, it, it's, it's improving. There is a trickle of people constantly returning to Israel. Um, you don't go back many years to maybe about 1990, and there were four times as many Jewish people outside of Israel as there are inside Israel. So it's quite a parallel with today. Now, an agrarian people went into the captivity. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar, in his sieges of Jerusalem, took them into captivity, and they, when they reached Babylon, they, they would say, how shall we sing Adonai's song in a strange land? And let my tongue cleave to the roof of my mouth if I prefer not Jerusalem. But now, 70 years later, more than 70 years later, a new generation has reached adulthood. Some never knew Judea. Some came to Babylon as young children. And they've learned to be shopkeepers, moneylenders, merchants, uh, and worked worked for their Gentile hosts. So, this is the period we're in. It says post-exile, although, as I say, many Jewish people preferred to stay in, well, scattered throughout the Persian Empire, mainly in in, uh, Babylon and Susa, the the capital of Persia. Esther 1, verse 1. Now, it came to pass in the days of Ahasuerus, this is Ahasuerus who reigned from India, even unto Ethiopia, over over an hundred and seven and twenty provinces, that in those days... When the king sat on the throne of his kingdom, which was in Shushan the palace. And the Media Persian Empire was vast, stretching from the Horn of Africa to the Himalayas. It took in all the civilized world except the Grecian city states and China. It, is of course, it, it of course included Israel and Judea, or more correctly at that time, Judea and Samaria. 
Uh, Hazoeris is a title. Uh, he's the Xerxes of secular history. Verse 2, verses 2 and 3. Now that in those days when King Ahasuerus sat on the throne in his kingdom, which was in Shushan the palace, in the third year of his reign, he made a feast unto all his princes and his servants, the power of Persia and Media, the nobles and the princes of the provinces being before him. When he showed the riches of his kingdom and the honour of his excellent majesty, many days, even an hundred and fourscore days. So Xerxes has called the princes and governors from across his empire together. He wants to sell something. The city-states of Greece have been a thorn in the side of the empire, and he wants to conquer them and bring them into his, into his empire. His father um, had been irritated by them. He'd gone to war against them, Darius, and uh, had failed to conquer them. And so uh, he died before he could raise an army and uh, try again. But his son Xerxes is going to now try. And Xerxes was actually not the oldest son, but he, he dis- descended from Cyrus. His mother descended from Cyrus. And so he became emperor in place of his older brother. Now he has a party that continues for six months. The expense was vast. But Xerxes' father Darius and their forebears have built a wealthy, successful empire. And today, no world leader could afford a party for many hundreds of leaders for six months. And these folks all had to be accommodated, fed three meals a day. Couldn't be done. If anyone here has ever arranged a wedding for a daughter, you know how expensive that is. And that's just for a few dozen people. We're talking about hundreds of uh, uh, leaders of countries who've got to be treated diplomatically and have the red carpet rolled out and fed and and watered very, very well. Uh, No exchequer could afford it. Her Majesty could not do this. The President of the United States could not do this today. This is money being spent on a vast scale. But Xerxes wants them to know he can afford to build an army a vast army and a navy to go to war against the city-states of Greece. Now, the Grecian states were separate uh, countries, Athens, Sparta, so forth, and uh, they weren't united. The only time they were united was when a common enemy came against them, and then suddenly they were, they were united. They weren't united until Alexander, his father Philip of Macedonia, started to unite Greece. When he died, Alexander finished the job because with the Greek army he was able to go on and conquer the world. But at that time they were separate city-states. Each one had its own distinctives. Each one thought it was special in its own way. Uh, The Spartans were very military. The Athenians were very intellectual. And they they didn't really see eye to eye. But they are an irritant to the Persians. And Xerxes wants to do something about this. And when these days were expired, the king made a feast unto all the people that were present in Shushang the palace both unto great and small, seven days in the courts of the garden of the king's palace. So now he's throwing this open to the entire city. Every commoner can come to to this party for seven days. Again, very expensive. There were white, green, and blue hangings fastened with cords of fine linen and purple to silver rings and pillars of marble. The beds were of gold and silver upon a pavement of red and blue and white and black marble. So the palace at Susa was decorated magnificently. It reminds me of some of the corporate headquarters in those United States. Some of the very rich corporations will have magnificent buildings. The reception is always decorated sumptuously with expensive marbles or or stones that have been brought from far away. And uh, 
they, they just are the, the lift shafts look always look very special it's just the reception is a wonderful desk it looks very very plush they usually can't afford to pay their cleaning people a, a living wage which i think is a, a very sad reflection the laborer is worthy of his hire and they gave them drink in vessels of gold the vessels being diverse one from another and royal wine in abundance according to the state of the king and the drinking was according to law none did compel for so the king had appointed to all the officers of his house that they should do according to every man's pleasure. So each wine vessel, they weren't a set of matching glasses from Wilco's. Each one was handmade, special, made out of expensive materials. The royal wine, expensive wine was flowing. Everyone could drink as much as they wanted to. If you didn't want to drink, you didn't have to. Um, no peer pressure there. And also, Vashti the queen made a feast for the women in the royal house, which belonged to King Ahasuerus. Here's a map of his empire. I think it slightly understates it, but it gives you an impression. Uh, down here, Libya and Egypt, going down towards Ethiopia, then right across uh, Judea, Samaria, um, what's called the Fertile Crescent, Babylon, into, into Persia, then across through Asia towards the Himalayas. An absolutely vast area. In those days, it would mean many, many days, weeks to travel across it by horse or, or camel. Verse 9. Also, Vashti the queen made a feast for the women in the royal house, which belonged to King Ahasuerus. The custom at that time was that the ladies had their own party, uh, drinking separately from the men. And uh, wise Queen Vashti hosted them. On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded the seven chamberlains that served in the presence of Ahasuerus, the king, to bring Vashti the queen before the king with the crown royal to show the people and the princes her beauty, for she was fair to look on. So the king is merry with wine, and he wants to show off his prince, his, his, his princess, his queen. And he breaks protocol uh, he wants to show her off arrayed in her fine clothes and her royal jewellery and so forth. Just as the crowning piece of his, his, uh, his, he's showing off his wealth to show that he can afford to raise this enormous army and navy to go to war. And this is, this is his crowning piece. Look at my beautiful queen. But the custom of that time was that the ladies didn't come into the men's feast. Verse 12. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's commandment by his chamberlains. Therefore was the king very wroth, and his anger burned in him. Then the king said to the wise men which knew the times, for so was the king's manner towards all that knew law and judgment, what shall be done unto Queen Vashti according to law, because she has not performed the commandments of the king as Hazarus by the chamberlains? So the king is angry because his wife has disobeyed him, although she was fully within her rights according to the customs of that time, and she was acting in the socially correct manner. And Memucan answered before the king and the princes, Vashti the queen hath not only done wrong to the king only, but also to all the princes and to all the people who are in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus. For this deed of the queen shall, become, shall come abroad to all women, so that they shall despise their husbands in their eyes, when it shall be reported when it shall be reported the king Ahasuerus commanded Vashti the queen to be brought before him but she came not if it please the king let there go royal commandment from him and let it be written among the laws of the Persians and the Medes that it be not altered 
that Vashti come no more before King Ahasuerus and let the king give her royal estate to another better than she. Verse 20. And when the king's decree which he shall make be published throughout the empire, for it is great, all the wives shall give to their husbands honour both great and small. And the saying, please the king and the princess and the king did according to the word of Memucan. So in the heat of his anger, King Ahasuerus turns to his cabinet to determine what to do about the queen. One of his advisors, a henpecked husband by the name of Memucan, uh, speaks up. His home life is miserable enough already. He does not want his home to deteriorate further. So he suggests having Vashti put away. It may be apparent, it may not be apparent, but the God of heaven is setting the stage for events yet to come. Verse 22, for he sent letters unto all the king's provinces and to every province according to the writing thereof and to every people after their language, that every man should bear rule in his own house, that it shall be published according to the language of every people. Now the Medes and the Persians had this idea that once a law was passed, that was it, it was permanent, because why not? The, the, the emperor was in the place of God and was therefore infallible. So when he said something... Uh, it had to be right. So how could it be reversed later on? I'm so glad that our uh, leaders in Westminster don't have that notion. We really would be in more trouble than we are already. So when a law went out from Susa, it had to be translated into, into every language in the kingdom, and there would be many hundreds of them. Only then could the law be sent to the parts of the empire. Now this is significant to us, because eventually Greece is going to rise and become the world power. And under Alexander, they spoke Koine Greek. Now, in the Medo-Persian Empire, if a law was made, it was translated into many hundreds of languages. The camels and horses would go out into the distant parts so that the leadership there was told what it was and that law was then published in, in the, the local province um, or district. Alexander didn't do that. He was a no-nonsense guy. And when he conquered someone, he said, you will learn Koine Greek. Now, there are two factors about that which we can be very grateful for. Firstly, Koine Greek was the most accurate language that's ever been. You can express something perfectly in Koine Greek, much more so than, say, in English. Sometimes you, someone will say something in English and you'll say, well, do you mean in the sense of so-and-so, or did you really mean to say it this way? Then I'll have to explain exactly what they, they meant. That wouldn't happen in, in Koine Greek. If you read a sentence in Koine Greek, you know exactly what the voice, the tense, the mood is. It, it's precise. So when we see the New, New Testament translated into English and you have a question about it, you go to Pastor Barry and you say, what does it say in the Greek? And if he knows, he'll tell you. If he doesn't, you go and look it up. And he say, well, in the Greek, it's very clear. It means this because it's always clear in the Greek. It has another thing which is a blessing to us. Because the whole then known world, you Koine Greek, when the gospel went out, people like Rabbi Saul, the Apostle Paul, would go from country to country speaking Koine Greek. He already knew the language that everybody would understand so the gospel could spread throughout the Roman Empire. But these people didn't have that advantage. They had to translate everything from probably dozens of dialects to, uh, in Ethiopia, way across to India, where they had hundreds of dialects. Between Esther chapters 1 and 2, Xerxes' army and navy have gone to war against the independent city-states of Greece. Greece and Persia had quarreled for years. Darius, Xerxes' father, had been planning a campaign against the states that would later become Greece. But he died, and it fell to his son Xerxes to plan an, 
Xerxes to plan an invasion. Xerxes raised one of the biggest forces seen in the ancient world. In 480 BC, he personally led the second invasion of Greece. His navy consisted of more than 800 ships. Some estimates are like 1,250 ships. It's, every historian has his own estimate, but it was a vast number. He fielded 60,000 combatants, and that's a vast army even by today's standards. And to ensure a steady supply line, he bridged the Hellespont, made a pontoon bridge and actually put a road across where he could march horses. And it was a very clever thing. Uh, it was lined with wood, and they would put soil on it and put, put uh, screens either side so horses wouldn't be frightened by the, the, the uh, waves. Unfortunately, uh, that part of the world is subject to severe storms, and whereas an ordinary bridge is only subject to the wind, a pontoon bridge, pontoon bridge is also subject to the waves. And it was destroyed one night, and in his anger, he, he gave the sea 300 lashes. But that didn't deter his invasion. He still had a vast army and navy to carry on with, and uh, he, he proceeded to Greece. He had victory over the allied Greek states at the Battle of Thermopylae, uh, which allowed the Persians to, to torch and evacuated Athens. So he destroyed Athens and overran most of Greece. However, while seeking to destroy the combined Greek fleet, the Persians suffered a, a, a severe defeat at Salamis. The two sides have a, had a different philosophy of war. The Persians adopted the same approach, much the same as the Americans have today. It was all about numbers. You fielded as many troops on the field of battle as you could. You sent in as many ships as you could. You overwhelmed the enemy with numbers. Now, the Grecians were not that many in numbers, but they believed in training the individual soldier or sailor. They taught them tactics. They taught them, uh, they made them into strong soldiers who knew how to go into battle, gave them the weapons, and... An individual Greek soldier could always take on many Persian soldiers. And because they were a narrow pass, only so many Persians got through at a time, and therefore the Grecians were able to defeat them. Now that matters to us because Daniel had said eventually Media Persia would fall and Greece would become the dominant empire. And that didn't happen at this time. It happened later, 300 years later under Alexander. But the balance is actually starting to fall. Greece didn't fall to the Persians. It survived. They fought two more battles. Um, and the last one was a naval battle when the, the Grecians defeated the Persian navy. By that time, Xerxes had fled home to his palace. Uh, at the Battle of Salamis, he'd actually sat on top of the hill to watch his victory and watch his defeat instead. And uh, the, the following two battles he lost. But he'd, he'd fled back to... He'd fled back to uh, Susa by then and left his troops to fight and die. So as we come to Esther chapter 2, we find a defeated, dejected Xerxes who no longer has his beloved Vashti. Now in Shushan the palace, there was a certain Jew whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jer, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, a Benjamite. He's a Benjamite, it's significant he's a Benjamite, we'll find out a bit later on that uh, God's going to use a Benjamite to finish a job which a Benjamite should have done more than 500 years before. Who had been carried away from Jerusalem with the captivity, which had been carried away with Jeconiah, or Jehoiakim, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried away. And he brought up Hadassah, that is Esther, his uncle's daughter, for she had neither mother nor father. 
and the maid was fair and beautiful, whom Mordecai, when her father and mother died, took for his own daughter. So this is quite a, a noble guy. Uh, he has a cousin who has no parents. They possibly died in Nebuchadnezzar's siege of um, Jerusalem, the second siege. And so he's raised her as his own daughter. In that sense, he's an educated man. But if he'd been in the right place, he wouldn't have been in Susa because the decree had already been made that the Jews could return to Judea. And like so many others, he'd stayed behind where he was comfortable. He had a, he had a job, he had a career, and he wasn't going to go back to a, reconstructing a country that had been destroyed 70-odd years before. Then after these things, when the wrath of King Ascasurus was appeased, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what was decreed to her. After these things is after the lost campaign against the Grecian states. And Xerxes so wished he had Vashti to comfort him. She had been set aside, and the laws of the Medes and Persians was unchangeable. After all, it couldn't be, cha- it could be, couldn't be changed because the, that would mean the king had made a mistake. In effect, the word of the king was considered infallible. Then said the king's servants that ministered unto him, Let there be, a, be fair young virgins sought for the king. And let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom that they may gather together all the fair young virgins unto Shushan the palace, to the house of the women, unto the custody of Hege, the king's chamberlain, keeper of the women. And let their things things of purification be given them. And let the maiden which pleaseth the king be queen instead of Vashti. And the thing pleased the king, and he did so. And the king sent letters... And he sent letters to all the king's provinces, unto every province, according to the writing thereof. So again, translation into the local languages. To every people, after their language, that every man should bear rule in his own house. Mordecai's ancestors could have been executed because he descends from Saul's family, and David could have, it would have been the custom of the time for them to have been executed. But David, in his mercy, spared them. He was a godly man and didn't take the vengeance which he was entitled to. So it came to pass, when the king's commandments and his decree was heard, and many maids were gathered unto Sushan the palace, to the custody of Hegai, that Esther was brought unto the king's house, to the custody of Hegai, keeper of the women. And the maiden pleased him, and she obtained kindness of him, and, and he speedily gave her things for purification, with such things as belonged to her, and seven maidens which were meet to be given her out of the king's house. And he prepared her maids unto the best, and he preferred her and her maids unto the best place of the house of women. So Esther is in this beauty contest to find the best-looking woman in the kingdom. Evidently, emperors in those days, and it really went on till uh, 1911 in China, thought that they were entitled to. They owned the women in the kingdom, and the good-looking ones they take to the palace, and that seemed to be normal behaviour to them. And Esther, if she'd failed this, she'd have just been a concubine in his harem. So Mordecai was taking a terrible risk, but he does it anyway. He enters her in this contest, and she finds favor with Hegai, the keeper of the house of women. And is there a reason she's finding, finding favor? Well, it seems that there is. Nevertheless, God is moving behind the scenes. Esther finds favor with Hegai, the eunuch who takes care of these women. Chapter 2, verse 10. Esther had not showed her people nor her kindred, for Mordecai had charged her that she should not do it. Anti-Semitism was in evidence in those days. 
And he's saying, don't tell them who you are, that you're, you're Jewish. At this point, Esther has not owned her people or her God. Worry of anti-Semitism, Mordecai has warned her just to be a woman of cosmopolitan Susa. In Susa, there have been women from all over the empire. People didn't all look the same. So another woman who looked a little different wasn't that unusual. And anyway, Jewish and Persian women wouldn't have looked that different. And Mordecai walked every day before the court of the women's house to know how Esther did and what should become of her. Now Mordecai is fretting. He wants to know what will happen to the girl he raised. He has taken a terrible risk putting her in this competition. Chapter 2, verse 12. Now when every maid's turn was come to go into the king, Ahasuerus, after she had been 12 months according to the manner of women, for so were the days of purification accomplished, to wit, six months with oil of myrrh and six months with sweet odours, uh, and other, with other things for the purifying of the women. So they spent six months putting oils and creams on their skin to look absolutely beautiful, then six months putting nice-smelling things on them, so when they went into the king, they smelled wonderful. Now I can remember, when I was a teenager, going to take my girlfriend out on a date, and her mum would say, would you mind sitting on a sofa for a few minutes? Thus and so is still getting ready. Now the date was 730 and eight o'clock she would appear, and I wouldn't be very happy about that. But uh, that was nothing. These ladies actually took six months to to get to look right, and then six months to get to smell right. Two verses thirteen through fourteen. Thus then came every maiden unto the king. Whatsoever she desired was given to her with her out of the house of the women unto the king's house. In the evening. She went, and in the morrow she returned unto the second chamber of the women, to the custody of Shazgaz, the king's chamberlain, which kept the concubines. She came unto the king no more, except the king delighted in her, and she was called by name. So the king spent one night with a woman. If she wasn't the one he really wanted to be queen, she went off to his harem, who was a concubine for the rest of her life. Wonderful existence, eh? Uh, The one that he chose, that he thought was the most beautiful... Uh, would become queen. Now, young fellas, it is quite important that the woman you're going to date and you eventually want to marry does look beautiful. You're going to wake up and look at her every morning. So that side of, of relationships is important. But for goodness sakes, you're looking for someone who has qualities, something inside, something real, something spiritual. This, this, uh, this is the heathen at their worst. Verse 15, chapter 2, verse 15. Now, when the turn of Esther, the daughter of Abihail, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken taken her for his daughter, was come to go in unto the king, she required nothing but what Haggai, the king's chamberlain, the keeper of the women, had appointed. So she gives her address, and he gives her address, some jewelry. She doesn't go asking for more. She knows this is the expert. He knows how to dress her. He'd have been a eunuch, by the way. And he sends her in absolutely perfectly dressed for the occasion. And Esther obtained favour in the sight of all of them that looked upon her. Evidently, Esther was being granted favour all the way through the process. Although she was a a remarkably beautiful young lady, perhaps something else is going on behind the scenes. Just could be that something's going on here that isn't immediately apparent. Chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. And I apologize for the slides. I've, I've lost myself somewhere, but that's, it is what it is. 
So Esther was taken unto King Ahasuerus, unto his house royal, in the tenth month, which is the month Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign. Which I think he ascended about 485, 487, so we're, we're now about 477, 478, something like that, B.C. And the king loved Esther above all the women, and she obtained grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins. So he set the royal crown upon her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Now I think the scripture is very, being very kind to Ahasuerus with the word loved. However, when he saw Esther, he needed to look no further. The empire has a new queen, and unbeknown to the court, she is Jewish. Verse 18, then the king made a great feast unto all his princes and all his servants, even Esther's feast. And he made a release to all the provinces and gave gifts according to the state of the king. Release meaning he actually gave them a tax cut. Nice to have. So the king is now happy and has another feast. And better yet, the people of the provinces have a tax cut. Verse 19, and when the virgins were gathered together the second time, then Mordecai sat in the king's gate. He sat in the king's gate. Does anyone have a clue what that means? In those ancient times, sitting in the gate meant something. Remember, Lot sat in the gate of Sodom. When Boaz wants to marry Ruth, he goes to the gate of Bethlehem. The, the gate is where they held the court in those days. Everyone would have to go through the gate of a city or in this case, the case, the gate of the palace, so you could catch them and say, we have a legal matter to deal with. They get their attention, they would, they would settle it. And that's, that's where all the legal judgments were made in those days. Now he's in the king's gate. His adopted daughter is now empress. He's got a new job. I rather think he's got a job as a Supreme Court judge. This wouldn't just be any court. It was the king's gate. It was the equivalent of a modern-day Supreme Court. And he's got a... A job there right at the king's gate. And even though Esther is now married, she's still careful to take her uncle's advice regarding her nationality. Verse 20, Esther had not yet shown her kindred nor her people as Mordecai had charged her. For Esther did the commandment of Mordecai like as when she was brought up by him. Evidently, he raised her well. She trusted her uncle or cousin rather, trusted her cousin, and though she's married, she's in this peculiar situation, married to a heathen emperor, she still takes advice from her cousin. In those days, while Mordecai sat in the king's gate, two of the king's chamberlains, Bigthan and Teresh, of those who kept the door, were wroth and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And the thing was known to Mordecai, who told it unto Esther the queen, and Esther certified the king in Mordecai's name. And when inquisition was made of the matter, it was found out, therefore, that they were both found out, therefore, they were both hanged on a tree. And it was written in the book of the Chronicles before the king. So there's been a plot to assassinate, assassinate Xerxes. Not surprising. I mean, imagine many, many, there were many widows and orphans who had a grudge against Xerxes because they'd gone, been sent to. Uh, the Greek states in the certainty of victory, and so many of them had not come back. And goodness knows what else that Xerxes had done. So there are people in the empire who do not like him and would like to see him replaced. And these two were caught plotting. Uh, Mordecai overheard. The, the, the news comes back to the king. These men are dealt with. It's written in the Chronicles and forgotten. 
Now, normally, if someone has done something very honourable for a monarch, there's some sort of title, a knighthood, or a member of the British Empire, or whatever they, they give out, and surely he should have had a, an MPE, member of the Persian Empire, but he, he got nothing. He was quietly forgotten. But maybe God's hand was in this. Maybe there's a reason that uh, this, this saving the king's life was forgotten. Maybe. After these things, did King Ahasuerus promote Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, and advanced him to set his seat above all the princes that were before him? The media Persian Empire now has a new prime minister, Haman the Agagite. What is an Agagite? The Agagites were the royal family of the Amalekites. And interestingly, there's a specific commandment in Torah to destroy, to utterly destroy, the Amalekites. Deuteronomy 25, 17 through 19. Remember what Amalek did unto thee, by the way, when you came out of Egypt. How he met you in the way and smote the highmost of thee, even all that were feeble and behind when thou wast faint and weary and he feared not God therefore it shall be when the Lord thy God hath given given thee rest from all thine enemies round about in the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee for an abundance for an inheritance to possess it that thou shalt blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven thou thou shalt not forget it so there's a specific commandment to destroy Amalek in Torah I wonder why and who is Amalek We'll be a little bit careful here because uh, back in Abraham's day, day, it does actually talk about uh, Amalekites. But the name, I believe, means dwellers in the valley. And I'm taking it the Amalekites of Abraham's day were just people who lived in in that area. Because the Amalekites that we're talking about are very specific people. Remember when Pastor Barry took us through Genesis 36, the chapter that deals with the descendants of Esau. Uh, Esau's family instead of moving in obedience to God, married into the very inhabitants of the land which God said should be destroyed. And they were marrying into a corrupt line. Uh, It goes back before the the flood. Probably came uh, down through Ham that there were people who had this uh, seed which wasn't completely human. I think we'll leave it at that for now. But they were a corrupt uh, line and uh, there was commandment not to marry them, but, but Esau married into them and they were the dukes of the kingdom of Edom and they were basically the descendants of Esau and the people his sons had married. Had, had married. So Esau and Ada had a son called Eliphaz and Eliphaz and his Horite concubine Tima produced Amalek and uh, the tribe he belonged to is spelled H-O-R-I-T-E. Let's not make her worse than she really was. So the Amalekites were related to the Israelites yet the Amalekites continually made war against Israel. Exodus 17, 8 through 13. Then came Amalek and fought with Israel at Rephidim. And Moses said to Joshua, Choose us out men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the rod of God in mine hand. So Joshua did as Moses said to him and fought with Amalek. And Moses and Aaron and Hur went up to the top of the hill. And it came to pass, when Moses held up his hand, that Israel prevailed. And when he let down his hand, Amalek prevailed. When Moses' hands became heavy... They took a stone and put it under him, and he sat thereon, and Aaron and Hur stayed, stayed up his hands, the one on the one side, the other on the other side, and his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. And Joshua discomforted Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword. Uh, so that's 
like their first great battle with Amalek. And there's something rather lovely about that in that it's Moses' responsibility to praise God. He's got to hold his hands up. He becomes weary, so he has help. And you know, as believers, there are times when we get weary, but we've got brothers and sisters who can hold those hands up for us, can encourage us, come alongside. So you may be weary sitting on a stone, but you've got someone here who, who, who will encourage you, help you go forward. That's a lovely lesson there. We're digressing, but does it matter? On the journey through the wilderness, Amalek would pick off the stragglers, the old, the infirm, and those with young babies. So there'd be this march through the wilderness. They'd be moving at a certain pace, but there were some who gradually fall to the back because they're nursing a young baby, uh, an old person in the family. They're, they're assisting him. And as they fell back, the Amalekites would pick them off. God hated them for that. You want to face Israel in battle? That's fine. But picking off people, the weak, the infirm, God hates that. And it's evident, evident in Torah that God hates it as well. Uh, it teaches us to rise up before the hoary head. That means you show respect to those who are, have gone before and are less firm than they were when they were young. Almost all the way through the book of Judges, when you read about an enemy of, of uh, the Israelites, who's their ally, who's with them? It's the Amalekites. They're consistently an enemy of Israel. So eventually the prophet Samuel commands Israel's first king, Saul, a Benjamite, remember that name, to utterly destroy the Amalekites. Samuel 15 verses 1 through 3. Samuel said unto Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint thee to be king over Israel. Now therefore hearken thou unto the voice of the words of the Lord. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, I remember that which Amalekite did to Israel, how he would lay wait by the way when he came up from Egypt. Now go and smite Amalek and utterly destroy all that they have and spare them not, but slay both man and woman, infant, suckling, and ox, sheep, camel, and ass. So it wasn't just the people that Saul was commanded to destroy, it was their livestock as well. So Saul disobeyed God. We we all know the story, but we'll go through it anyway. Uh, God's word through Samuel had come, but he spared Agag the king, and the best of the flocks and the herd, herds. It costs all the kingdom. But as we're about to find out, it almost cost Israel her existence. It is indeed better to obey than to sacrifice, Samuel 15:22. Here, six centuries later, and an Agagite, a descendant of Agag, a deadly enemy of the Jews, is prime minister of the media Persian Empire. Uh, it's likely that the world's entire Jewish population lived within the empire we don't read them going to the the city-states we know that much later on the jewish people went quite deeply into africa when europeans first explored they'd actually find small communities of, of people who kept the jewish feasts and told the time by the moon uh, but not at this time this is far before that and the first um, jews in china the kaifeng jews went until till um a thousand years later um a long time after this, and if you could get across the Himalayas, which is, which is asking a lot, China at that time, the Sung Dynasty had collapsed. Uh, the northern half of the country was at a war with barbarians. In the south, was trying to put itself together. So there was nowhere in the world to go, really, but the Persian Empire. Haman had every Jew within his power. Esther 3, verses 1 and 2. After these things did God 
the king Ahasuerus promote Haman, the son of Hamadeth and the Agagites, advanced him and set his seat above all the princes that were with him. And all the king's servants that were in the king's gate bowed and reverenced Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai didn't bow or do him reverence. Now, the king's servants which were in the king's gate said unto Mordecai, Why transgressest thou the king's commandment? Now it came to pass when they spoke daily unto him, and he hearkened not unto them, that they told Haman to see whether Mordecai's matter would stand. For he had told them that he was a Jew. So at last Mordecai's forthcoming about his nationality, he is a Jew. He belongs to God's people. A people noted as monotheists who kept very specific customs, including not bowing to man or other gods. And when Haman saw that Mordecai bowed not, nor did him reverence, then was Haman full of wrath. And he thought scorn to lay hands on Mordecai alone, for they had showed him the people of Mordecai. Therefore Haman sought to destroy all the Jews that were throughout the whole kingdom of of Ahasuerus, even the people of Mordecai. So Haman was not content to deal with just Mordecai. He wants to destroy the entire Jewish population. And always beware of anyone whose whose response to something negative is completely disproportionate. You know, if... if, uh, if uh, Leon and I disagree on something and maybe we go away upset that's fine, we can come back and say oh brother we got out of salt about that but if I go away and I'm just disproportionately angry I hate him, I hate his family and there's something wrong with, seriously wrong with me and if you get into that frame of mind you need to come and ask for prayer because that sort of disproportionate wrath is not normal, it's not human and this is Haman He wants to destroy an entire people, millions and millions of people, because one person has offended him. Actually, it's the disease of anti-Semitism that's come down through his bloodline, but even so, it's, it's so disproportionate, it's evil. I think we're going to leave it at that point this week. Next week, we'll find out if and how God delivers Israel. I think you know the answer to if, because there's a synagogue down in Portsmouth and there's a nation in the Middle East, but how? We'll talk about it next time. Thank you, Pastor Barry. Well, thank you, Adrian. Uh, it's such an incredible book, and I think one of the things that uh, Adrian said right at the start of that is about the providence. You see God working behind the scenes, and we see it in our own lives. And uh, you know, there's so many little lessons that we can draw from that. Um, well, I think Adrian said at the start, and it never really hit me before in quite the same way, the importance of that book. That if we don't have that book then we wouldn't be here this morning because there would have been no Israel. And if there was no Israel, there'd be no Messiah. You know, you start to see all the importance of, of God's plan, how it works together. And again, that, that, that need for us to be faithful, even in the little things. And of course, uh, we see that Saul wasn't faithful in destroying the Amalekites. And that leads to this problem that we've, we're just about to get into the, the details of now. So bless you. Thank you for that. Let's just bow in heart, our hearts in, in prayer. We? Father, thank you for this time this morning. Lord, thank you just for the reminder that you are a faithful God. Lord, we were singing earlier, but Lord, we just see it in your word, how faithful you are. You're faithful to your people, the people that you call your own. And Lord, what a privilege for us this morning that we are called by your name. Lord, we just thank you that you love us, Father, beyond anything we can reciprocate, Lord, even understand. 
But Father, we thank you. Lord, I pray this week that you are near those that need your touch this week, Lord, that we all walk, Lord, by faith, Lord, in just keeping our eyes upon Jesus. Uh, Father, for the various things that will be going on through this week, Lord, we just ask your blessing in your hand. Uh, Father, just keep us close to you, we pray. Uh, Bless our time of fellowship now, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. May God bless you.